We're in Mark. We are in chapter 8, starting in verse 1, as I try not to spill my tea. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered, How can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate, desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, graciously open your holy and eternal word to us poor people. And establish us in the knowledge of your will and direct all who err in your word to the right way again, so that we may live according to your divine pleasure. In Christ's name, amen. It's been quite a while now. It was 2001, and I had my own version of Meet the Parents in New, in New Jersey. <clears throat> you see... I was meeting Amy's parents, and I was meeting two of her sisters and their husbands and little kids. And so it was a little noisy there, and it was, it was fun in some respects because uh, Patch at this point was still sort of learning how to walk, and uh, there was a nice uh, mantle sort of around the wood-burning stove, and he did an awesome face plant off the stone when he tripped. Um, so it was noisy. It was also a little uncomfortable. There was a discussion of a visit to the OBGYN that I did not want to take part of. And so I escaped to the safety of the menfolk around the grill. And I might say to this, ladies, when your men escape to the grill, it might be because you're talking about something that makes them a little uncomfortable. Okay? It just got better from there. There was a mini um, ordination uh, trial as one of her siblings interrogated me about what I believed to make sure that this Presbyterian, of which some are suspect, uh, was actually a real Christian. And then came the meal itself. She had given me a heads up prior to uh, meeting her family and said to me, "I I understand, but please don't. Try to keep up. 
and I had no grasp of what she possibly could have meant, uh, but there were so many simultaneous conversations that were going around, going on at this particular table, uh, some of which had uh, scatological reference, and it was just overwhelming at points of time. But it was a meal in which I was meeting my prospective new family. What we have here is a meal, and Jesus is, in a sense, meeting his new family, or a part of his new family. And it's going to be messy, but it's going to be good. Let's start with the problem. What problem emerged during his time near the Decapolis? And we're going to see that largely from verses 1 through 4 in chapter 8 here. And we're reminded by Mark that it's in those days. In what days? Those days when he's by the Decapolis. Okay? Referring to the previous passage that we looked at at the end of chapter 7. So it's this time of ministry that Jesus is engaging in amongst the Gentiles. He has moved out of the region of Galilee in part because of the opposition of the the, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, and he has begun to engage in ministry amongst these Gentiles in this region called the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. Okay, And so our map, we see it's on the other side of the sea, and it's not just the other side of the sea, it's almost like the other side of the world, because the population is very different. Instead of mostly Jewish people with a couple of Gentiles thrown in, you have mostly Gentiles with a couple of Jewish people thrown in for good measure. And so, one of the the key things that came up was that idea of clean versus unclean in his last discussion slash debate with the Pharisees, and now Jesus is engaging in ministry amongst these unclean Gentiles. This is a parallel account to what Rick read for us in Matthew 6. Sorry, Mark 6. I did it yet again. My brain just gets stuck in there. Okay? Uh, Some people have theorized that this is two accounts of the same feeding, uh, but if we're honest and look at the text, we see a number of significant differences that indicate that this is a different event. Not only do we have uh, this text and the differences there, but we also, later on in this chapter, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus asks the questions to the disciples, some rather pointed questions to the disciples, that indicate that there were, in fact, Two different feedings. These are not the same, though they are parallel. One to a Gentile audience, sorry, one to a Jewish audience, and now this one to a largely Gentile audience. So we see, in those days of this ministry, a great crowd gathered, and the problem is, is that they had nothing to eat. This prompts a crisis And a crisis often presents opportunity. And uh, this crisis is going to present opportunity in a good way, not a negative way. But this is a crisis because Jesus says, they have been with me now three days. There's no mention in the previous one of it being a time period of that length. Okay. But they have been, they've been listening to Jesus for three days. It's not explicit that he was teaching, but it's implied 
that he was teaching. Not simply performing miracles and healing people like the, the man who was uh, deaf and couldn't speak that we looked at last week, but Jesus was also instructing them for three days. Imagine that for a moment, sitting and listening to somebody in the wilderness for three days. The people's hunger for the word meant that they weren't focused on time. It's interesting, uh, we read from Nehemiah 8 in in particular because I I wanted to see uh, that in that instance, uh, we had the people of Israel who hadn't really heard the word of God and the law of God in a long time. They came and they sat for a whole morning while Ezra read the law, and then explained it to them. And they were famished at that point. And so we see that Nehemiah continues uh, with the instruction that they were to go and to eat, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. But here is, they're not gathered in the city, they're gathered in the wilderness, and there is no home that is nearby for them to go and eat in. It's a distance, Jesus mentions that they have, some of them have come from a long way. And so Jesus is worried that they might faint on the way home because of the weakness that is produced by the fact that they did not have food. But what I want us to recognize here is that these Gentiles, these unclean people, these ones that were unfit for the Pharisees and the scribes to talk to, These Gentiles were cherishing an unprecedented opportunity to hear Jesus that the scribes and the Pharisees themselves have been rejecting. They've wanted to debate Jesus, not listen to Jesus. And here we have these unwashed people, these unclean people, these uncircumcised people listening to Jesus. Sometimes Jesus has an unlikely audience, and the people that should be listed, you would think would be listening to him, have tuned him out. So, we have people without food, uh, we have some from far away. Uh, We have uh, the fact that they're in a desolate place. There's no markets nearby. You you can't go to the Circle K or the Quick Pick or anything like that and pick up some food. But we see that their hunger for truth has created a hunger for food that could not be satisfied easily nor readily. See, this meeting means that Jesus is meeting other needs, their need for truth, that makes them less mindful of their need for food. Which probably brings to your mind as well as mine, Deuteronomy 8, which Jesus used, he quoted from, not the whole verse, but part of it, and when he was refuting the temptations of the, the evil one. He, and he humbled you, speaking about the wilderness generation, the Lord humbled you and let you hunger 
and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so here we have in the wilderness how God was testing his people, humbling his people, reminding his people that it's not food alone that means that they live, but it's also the word of God that sustains them. For the manna came from the word of God. It was not a natural food. These Gentiles have gone out of their way in order to be taught at inconvenience to their ordinary lives. It makes me wonder, do we go out of our ways at times to be taught? Discipleship, not just ministry, but discipleship, coming under the tutelage of Jesus, becoming an apprentice of Jesus, can be very inconvenient. It includes this idea of submitting our schedules to God's schedule. And part of that is the rhythm of life that we find in Scripture. Uh, a rhythm of life that we find encapsulated in the law. And we tend to focus on the Sabbath day, but there, you know, it says, six days you shall work, and one day you shall rest. And so there's a rhythm of life that includes the doing of our ordinary vocations, but also the ceasing from those ordinary vocations so that we might rest and seek God for our spiritual nourishment. That's an ordinary pattern of life, or at least it's intended to be. It's inconvenient to lay aside what you want to do, and the, the Jews struggle with that, as you see throughout the prophets. They, they still wanted to do business on that seventh day. But, but he invites you to cease from our striving and to enjoy him that day, to sit and learn from him that day. It's, it's not meant to be an inconvenience upon you. It's meant to satisfy your soul, to strengthen and encourage you instead of to frustrate you, impoverish you. So while discipleship can seem inconvenient at times, inconvenient at times it's actually for our good. And the, the rhythm of life includes times of intense discipleship on a regular weekly basis. And so seeking Jesus is as important as seeking food. So how do Jesus and the disciples respond to this real need on behalf of the people? This is, this is almost the whole text, but I've narrowed it down for you to verses 2 to 10. I removed the first one. I'm so kind. Earlier, meaning in chapter 6, in, in that particular feeding of the 5,000 men, okay, that's one of the differences, it mentions 5,000 men and the women and children. Here it only mentions 4,000 total. Um, earlier, it was the disciples who said, Hey, Jesus, they're kind of hungry. 
Here, it's Jesus who brings it up. He's the one who initiates this discussion with the disciples, and he says, I have compassion on the crowd. Now, in the earlier feeding, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and then he proceeded to teach them. Here, the compassion is, I have been teaching them, and they have no food. And so uh, the the focus of his compassion shifts between the first account of of a feeding and this account of a feeding, this time amongst the Gentiles. But I want us to pay attention to this. It's not insignificant that Jesus ties his compassion to the fact that they're hungry. In other words, Jesus does not despise your human earthly needs. Christianity is not a Gnostic religion, one that embraces the spirit and hates the flesh or the material world. Jesus affirms not just our spiritual needs, but Jesus also affirms our material needs. That's important for us to remember because sometimes we seem to act as though it's unspiritual to be concerned about material needs. There there is uh, intended to be a balance here, that there are times when we may deprive ourselves of our material needs, a fast, okay? But we're not intended to deny ourselves too long and therefore destroy ourselves. We're to learn something in the midst of this. Uh, and it, this kind of ties in with that whole Deuteronomy 8 thing. But Paul Tripp, in his discussion of uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, mentions this, uh, I think two days ago. I am not independent or self-sufficient, but dependent on the goodness of God for my needs. Okay. Don't be afraid of the fact that you are dependent. Uh, Don't be afraid of of the reality of how God has made you as a contingent or dependent being. There's nothing shameful uh, about being needy. But also don't think that you have to take care of it only by yourself. But we see the goodness and kindness of God at work to meet our needs. Jesus knows that you have physical needs and you need physical nourishment, but Jesus also knows that you have spiritual needs for spiritual nourishment, and Jesus provides for both. Compassion. I didn't talk about really what compassion is yet. If Jesus had it, we probably ought to understand it. And compassion is, in a sense, a mixture love and pity. Uh, Sometimes we can have love, but no pity. You might love somebody, but not feel bad about their circumstances, because you might think in the back of your head, well, they just brought this upon themselves. We might have pity for somebody, wow, that's really bad. But without love, we don't do anything about it. And so what Jesus has is both love and pity 
for their circumstances, and that love, that combination of love and pity, it's almost like a uh, chemistry experiment. I stunk at those. But when you mix two chemicals and then there's a chain reaction that takes place, chemical reaction that takes place, and things might bubble or explode or change into something else, action takes place. When love and pity mix, action takes place to meet the physical need or the spiritual need. And so Jesus acts to meet this need. We see that Jesus, because he is the Son of God, is again manifesting the character of God. And last week we mentioned James 5, and I'm going to throw that out there again for you, verse 11, about how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So Jesus is acting completely within his character, his nature, as he shows compassion upon these people. But let's see his compassion amongst the Gentiles. We see that he was compassionate towards this mother whose daughter was possessed by a demon. We see that Jesus had compassion for the friends and for the man who was deaf and couldn't speak. And now we see Jesus showing compassion to ordinary needs. And so there's sort of a a, um, descending level of urgency, a a descending um, desperation in the need. Okay? But Jesus still meets it. Jesus doesn't reserve his compassion for the big stuff. He provides compassionately for all of these needs that we've seen here. In other words, no need is too small for the compassion of Jesus. This stands in contrast to Caesar, who again, if we go back to verse uh, the first introduction to Mark, we remind, we remember, ugh, I remind you uh, that Caesar called himself a son of God, Jesus is the true Son of God, but that fake Son of God had no compassion upon his people's needs. So we see that so often government only cares about the needs of some people. It's not something that's particular to Caesar. It's particular, or it's common to almost every government. But it is not common to Jesus. And that's part of how he stands out. As we think about needs, uh, let's think about the ordinary ways in which those are met, and then briefly the extraordinary ways in which those are met. Ordinarily, we see that needs are met through worship and work. In other words, our spiritual nourishment is provided in the worship with his people and our physical needs, our spiritual, uh, our physical nourishment is provided as we work. We get the resources we need to be able to eat and that, you know, as a, as a dad and a husband, uh, I work so that my wife has food and my kids have food and clothing and shelter. That's ordinary, but sometimes there are extraordinary circumstances. 
And extraordinary circumstances require extraordinary means in order to meet them. And so uh, there are times when you want to work, but you can't work. You want to work, but there's no job available. And you find yourself in desperate straits. That's similar to this. There was no ordinary way for these people to have their physical needs met. And so Jesus performs an extraordinary means, a miracle for them. Oftentimes we try to, rely, we try to demand a miracle and neglect the ordinary means. Sometimes we, in other words, kind of flip-flop these two things in our sinfulness. That's where we get to the disciples. The disciples who obviously said, well, Jesus, remember, you fed the 5,000 men with the women and children and all. Jesus, you can do it. But no, that's not how the disciples respond. They're forgetful of what Jesus has done. Uh, And remember, Jesus already said that they were hard of heart. They were slow to listen. And and, these are the disciples. They're just like us. We struggle. They say, how can one feed these people in this desolate place? They've forgotten everything that they've seen before. They forgot Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men. In fact, this time they didn't even offer to buy food like they did the last time. We're not, even, we're not sure. Are their resources short? Have they gone through the, uh, the purse? Or has Judas stolen much of what was in the purse? Uh, we're not sure. But the real thing that's important here is the forgetfulness of the disciples, the spiritual amnesia of the disciples that led them to respond to this crisis with fear instead of faith. What are you forgetting in this crisis? Are you forgetting the character of God in the midst of this crisis? Are you forgetting his, his continuing providence in your life in the midst of this crisis? Are you forgetting his character in the midst of this crisis? We're prone to do that. It's not something that just they did then, but it is something that we struggle with in the present. And so Jesus brings them back to reality in a sense. How many loaves do you have? Seven. The fish at this point are seemingly an afterthought because they're just kind of mentioned later. But we see that after Jesus had given thanks, Eucharisto, he then blesses, he, he then breaks it and has them distribute them. And then come the fish and Jesus blesses the fish. He, eulogizes the fish if you want to be if you want to transliterate it he verbalizes gratitude and he also requests this is the idea of the blessing he requests god's effectiveness so that the food does its job it 
It's an important thing for us to remember. When we eat, we should be filled with gratitude and express that gratitude, but we should also remember uh, that apart from God's work, it still won't produce its intended result, which is the strengthening and nourishing of the body. Um, But some of you want to bless really horrible things that you eat (laughs) as if they're really nutritious. I'm not going there. But this is a reminder that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. As it says in James 1, he's the same God then that he is now. And he still gives good gifts to his children. Now from this supply, these seven loaves of bread and a couple of fish, Jesus is able to feed 4,000 people so that they are satisfied. And not just were they satisfied, but there are seven baskets of leftovers. Which means that there's enough for another meal or two for the disciples. And so Jesus then sends them home. He dismisses them. And this is good because now they've been energized for this travel. And then Jesus and his disciples get in the boat and go to the region of Dalmuntha. Dalmanutha. Which we believe, because we're not really sure, we're not positive, but it's directly across the Sea of Galilee to the, on the western shore just south of where Jesus had been ministering before. Okay. Our limited resources do not limit Jesus' compassion. I want us to remember that. We're about to enter a time when we've already been in this time, but we're, we're, we're potentially about to enter a deeper time where compassion is going to be necessary because needs are going to be great. Uh, There are people who may not get their jobs back. There sort of is almost this assumption that we'll just like flick the switch and now everybody gets their job back. No, not everybody's going to get their job back. Some people are going to continue to be needy and suffer for an extended period of time. Some people are suffering in other ways during this. They're suffering loss of loved ones. And so in in both of these, compassion will be needed. And as people who have received the the compassion of Christ, uh, we are intended to then express compassion to other people. And I'm thankful, so thankful for the compassion uh, that we've already expressed uh, towards the Navajo Nation. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for the compassion that we have expressed as a congregation uh, to some of the Hispanic churches and their members here in Tucson. But don't think it's done. It's only just beginning. And that we may need to continue to show compassion to some of these people. And so Jesus expresses compassion for our physical needs. All right, third part. I'm having compassion upon my throat this morning. 
what are we to understand about this miracle or from this miracle? I want you to remember that the miracles of Jesus are intended to be signs. If you're following along with uh, Tea with Steve right now, we're in the book of Exodus, and it's talked about how Moses was supposed to show these signs to verify, authenticate the fact that he was sent by God. And so what we're finding here in these miracles is that Jesus is authenticating the fact that he's been sent by the Father to accomplish the task of Messiah. And so, you know, those years ago in New Jersey, I was meeting what may or may not have been my future family. Jesus is inviting these people to meet their Messiah. Even though they're Gentiles. He's revealing himself as Messiah, intending to usher in this kingdom that he's been talking about but to also to enter in, to usher in this new age. It's not simply a new empire that's being built. It's a new age of salvation that is being introduced. And part of this is he's doing things that normally were associated with God himself. Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And here is Jesus preparing a table for sheep in the wilderness surrounded by devils. We see that Jesus here fulfills what uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. In other words, he preached peace to the Gentiles as well as preaching peace to the Jews. We don't have many rec- much in the way of Jesus himself preaching to the Gentiles, but this is one of those places. He crossed the sea, which represented a great barrier between these cultures, these peoples, and he preached peace to them and fed them. Jesus plays dinner host to a gathering of unclean Gentiles, indicating that they're welcome in his kingdom. They can be participants of the new age. They can be grafted into the vine of Israel, accepted. Uh, Even though they're foreigners, they can be fully accepted as citizens of this new kingdom. They're not going to be resident aliens. They're not going to have people with green cards. They're going to belong fully, is what Jesus is getting at in this meal. But it's not simply about this meager meal in the wilderness. This simple meal prefigures an extravagant feast that God is going to prepare for the nations. Isaiah 26. It's been a while since I've been there. Isaiah is talking about the future time at the end. And it's surrounded by judgment, but in the midst of that judgment, you have this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, will make for all peoples, not just Jews, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. There's going to be great steaks. Sorry, vegan friends of mine. There's great steaks. 
There's great wine, sorry teetotaling friends of mine. This is the scriptures speaking. And it's a picture of something even better than that. But there's this incredible feast fit for a king that Jesus, that Jesus is going to prepare for all of his people, regardless of what nation they came from. It's spoken of again in Revelation 19. Again, surrounded by the reality of judgment upon the wicked nations. But the angel said to me, John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The feast that's in Isaiah 26 is, I believe, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we find Jew and Gentile joined together in celebration of this incredible event. They're both um, the audience and the bride at the same time and in a different sense. In other words, uh, there's coming a time when the animosity between Jew and Gentile ends at this wedding supper. This week... I got bagels. You'll understand why this is important in a moment. Hang with me. I found a new place not too long ago called the Bagel Joint. Okay? Sorry if you go to one of the franchises. Okay? There's a little thing on their window that says it all. If it ain't boiled, it ain't a bagel. They're Yankees. They do it right. They're from the Northeast. They're my people. And, and almost everyone who works there has my accent or something close to it. Okay, you go in there and you hear New York, New Jersey, and, and uh, Boston accents all over the place. Okay, and it's not just that. But what I see is, like, when I went the other day, there was an older lady who was running the counter, and she had a New York Rangers hat on. Okay, hockey, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> Okay, but then there's a, there's, a, there's a Patriots thing right over here, and you have Yankee stuff and Red Sox stuff and all of this stuff, all of these human animosities. But for me, the bagel joint is like a sliver of heaven. One, because there's food, but also those animosities don't matter. They're not ignored. I mean, it's not like they don't exist, but they're saying... We love each other, despite these differences we might have based on a a car ride of a couple of hours. Okay? So I love going to the bagel joint. Of course, I, I tend to favor the people who cheer for the Red Sox. But it's a picture of what heaven is going to be like. You're still going to be black or white or Asian or Native American, uh, you're still going to be that, but you're all part of the one body. And so while you you will have differences, those differences are not important anymore. Uh, Those things that we make a big stink about aren't going to be important anymore. So the animosity between Jew and Gentile is intended to vanish 
at the wedding supper of the Lamb, but we anticipate that, or we're supposed to anticipate that day when we celebrate communion. Now, we're not doing that today. Next week, for those who are going to be present here, we're going to do it, and it's been far too long for me that we have done this. But all who believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners are welcome to partake of that meal. It does not matter whether you're male or female. It does not matter whether you're Greek or Jew. It does not matter. It's supposed to be a picture of the multi-ethnic kingdom of God, bride of Jesus, body of Christ. We're also intended to anticipate that day by inviting outcasts to enjoy our hospitality. So there's, a, there's an outreach aspect to this. Uh, Jesus didn't wait for those Gentiles to cross the Sea of Galilee. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus went to an uncomfortable place in order to bring these people in. And sometimes we need to cross uncomfortable places to bring people in. Uh, sometimes we uh, need to sit down and have, have a meal with people who don't talk the way we talk. They might use some words that we don't like to hear. Or talk about things that we don't necessarily like to talk about. But we're extending the call of God to people who need the grace of God. So we see that Jesus gathers the nations in order to enjoy his blessings, or perhaps a better way, the blessings he wins for us. Well, let's go back to that meal in New Jersey. It certainly was noisy. It wasn't even the full family, and it was noisy. It was confusing, and there were times when it was a little awkward for me. It was like nothing um, I had at home. No one ever asked me, really, what my life was like down in Florida or what my life was like growing up. It just was, everything was there, man. But it was the beginning of this process of me becoming part of that family. Meals now are even noisier because now you have more children filling those tables. Often there are guests who come in and get overwhelmed by it all, like Phil Henry. He's been there. He knows what it's like. For me, that table is also a picture of heaven, where the stranger and the outcast are made to feel as family. Jesus, here in the wilderness, shows compassion on these unclean Gentiles. He accepted them by feeding them. And this Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, continues to show compassion by meeting people where they are in order to make them family, in order to care for them and bring them where he wants them to be by his grace. So if we wrap all this up, our big idea is meet the Messiah to feast with him. Let's pray.
Jesus, uh, we thank you for this miracle, which testifies not only to the fact that you're Messiah, but also testifies your compassion upon Gentiles, of whom most of us are. And that there's a place for us in your kingdom side by side uh, with believing Jews. Father, I pray for those who maybe have stumbled upon us this morning or, or, or people who um, are used to going to church but haven't quite sorted out this salvation issue yet, that you would be at work through texts like this to grant them the faith they need to be saved. A faith that recognizes Jesus as he's presented in the gospel, who sees, uh, who begin to see the mercy that is to be found in him and who uh, turn away from their disobedience, from their um, illusions of self-sufficiency so they can dine at his table for ages and ages to come. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.